0: So you can see the title is The Electronic Vortex. You're probably wondering what's that uh, all about. And I'll tell you in just a moment. We are going to look at a few scriptures today. And, uh, but I, I would like to finish in time enough for us to uh, have a Q&A. Uh, feel free to write down a few notes, but I promise you your hands will not get tired. This is more of a kind of a just take it all in and uh, I, I do have a few end points that I will emphasize and you can feel free to write that down. But I would like to open in a word of prayer, something that I was used to doing. Uh, I taught two Christian schools. When I came to UTM, I didn't open in prayer. So any time that I can uh, do that, I will. So let's pray. Father, we, we ask your blessings upon our time uh, this morning. May this uh, information be profitable. Insightful and practical for us in Jesus' name, Amen. Mm -hmm. So, here's I want to ask ask you a question. Uh, Whenever you think of Edgar Allan Poe, what do you normally think about? So, so if I was a psychologist and you were on the couch and I say Edgar Allan Poe, you would say dark, dark. Uh, any any famous works that you tell-tell heart? The Tell-tell I mean, uh, Heart. The
1: Raven, right? Yeah,
0: that one. Quote, the Raven, Nevermore." <laughs> uh, we're probably not as familiar with a short story that he wrote called "A Descent into the Maelstrom." And I'd like to just share. I want to open today by sharing a little bit about this story. The story is told with this old man. He's narrating the story. Or at least he appears to be old. He says in the story, you suppose me very, a very old man, but it took less than a single day to turn these hairs on my head from a jetty black to a white to weaken my limbs and to unstring my nerves. Well, that's a good attention getter for this story that Poe has written. And then this man, he goes on and tells this story of what happened to him. As the story goes, he and his two brothers are out in a fishing (laughs) boat on the North Sea. And it's off the Norwegian coast, and if you know anything about that area, they have these storms that come up. And so this great storm comes up, And the brothers suddenly realize that they're caught in this great whirlpool. And and Poe, in his short story, he describes the vortex as sort of slow moving around the edges. And then as you move in toward the center, the vortex accelerates and it gets faster. And eventually it becomes this great gapping hole, this gapping cavern where everything that gets caught in it is sucked down into oblivion. And so as the story goes, their boat may get caught in this thing and their boat is rotating and around and around and gradually they're being pulled down into the depths of the sea. But one of the brothers, notices how that cylinder objects at the edge of the vortex were not getting sucked down as fast. And so the sailor decides that he will strap a water barrel onto himself, and abandon ship. Now the other brother doesn't want to do this and he stays in the boat And so as the storyteller had hoped, the barrel that has been strapped onto this guy does not descend as fast into the vortex. Unfortunately, the brother who stays in the boat perishes. But that barrel saved the sailor that day, the narrator of the story. Uh, And he was able to... Stay at the outer edges of the vortex until the storm subsided. And so the sailor in Edgar Allan Poe's story, a descent into the maelstrom, was able to keep his head long enough so that the smaller objects that were being sucked down. did not go down as fast. And this is how he saved his life. So he was able to scrutinize the patterns of the water before he made this decision to abandon ship with this barrel. And that's kind of what we want to talk about right now. And that is pattern recognition. Now, much of what I have studied and much of what I have written about can be called pattern recognition. And there is a biblical precept here. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd like to read you a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 and verse 16. If you don't have your Bibles, that's fine, but you can uh, listen. As I read these verses, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16 says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of time because the days are evil. King James Version renders this verse, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, to walk circumspectly is to look all around you. Uh, we get our word circumference from circumspectly. So, do you know how, how owls are able to turn their heads 270 degrees? That's how we are to walk as Christians. Like a wise old owl looking all around with eyes wide open. According to reviews.org, which is a research group that serves the tech industry, a 2023 survey shows that the average American checks their phones 144 times a day. 89% of Americans say they check their phones within the first 10 minutes of waking up. 60% sleep with their phones at night. 75% say that they use their phones on the toilet. <laughs> 57% of Americans consider themselves addicted to their phones. Now you may not be surprised at these kinds of statistics but you need to know that the tech industry they rake in billions on our addictions. Adam Alter, associate professor of marketing and psychology at New York University, says in his book Irresistible that tech companies purposefully design their products to be addicted. The high that a person feels when they engage in something like Instagram is like being on crack because it gives a dopamine brush. And we're now only beginning to realize the emotional highs and the emotional lows that come with people who are addicted to social media. Uh, And we're not surprised that, that people who are addicted feel feelings of depression and loneliness and worthlessness. Let me just uh, give you two eye-opening truths about technology. And we'll spend a little time on this. Here's the first eye-opening truth about technology that I want to spend just a little bit of time on. First, we do not always see what a technology is doing to us. We do not always see what a technology is doing to us. Do you know what fish are most unaware of? Water. Fish, they're unaware of water because it's the environment in which they are immersed. You take a fish out of water and he'll know something happened to him. Do you know who complains the most about technologies. Old people. Someone who is 70 years old will say, why are you always on that phone thing? They only say this if they don't have one themselves. And if they ever get one, uh, they will stop saying it because they're on their phone thing. But here's what I'm trying to say. Once we get used to a technology, once we get it, we don't think about it anymore. Then, if we're deprived of that technology, we get really upset. I mean, the car goes into the shop, right? What a real bummer. Two days without my car. The electricity goes off for six hours. What a disruption. Mom takes away Sally's phone as punishment and World War III (laughs) begins. Now why is this? Why is this? I mean, for most of human history, when you think of all of human history, we had no cars, for the most part, or electricity, or smartphones for that matter, which is a very recent development in human history, and people got along with these, without these things, fine, for a very long time. Now, some of you might be sitting there right now, and you're thinking, well, this guy's kind of an anti-technology guy. No, I assure you, that's not true. In fact, to be anti-technology is like being anti-food. According to you Neil know, Postman, communication theorist. Why is this? Because all technologies are extensions of our body. So, and you can shout out the answer, uh, the fork is an extension of the hand. hand. Very good. And uh, the chair is an extension of your of your spine. And uh, the automobile is an extension of your... Mm-hmm. Okay, if, if you weren't driving your car to get here today, you would have to... So, the automobile is an extension of your, mm-hmm. of your foot, your feet. Now, this is, a, this is a very easy game to play. The phone is an extension of your... No, of your ear. <laughs> the telescope is an extension of your... Eye, Eye. good. And a boxing glove is an extension of your, of your fist. Very good. Now, here's a question for you. What is electronic media an extension of? <laughs> Get him there. Very good. A guy by the name of Marshall McLuhan, a Canadian communication theorist. He's now dead, but he was considered to be a communication guru in the 1970s. Some of us can remember him. <laughs> Henry Gibson appeared on Laugh-In and said, Marshall O'Klein, what are you doing? Because he began talking about these things. He said that electronic media was an extension of the central nervous system. The more powerful the extension, the more powerful the effect. Let's get back to the fish. All fish are oblivious to water and we become oblivious to our technologies because they are extensions of us and they become a part of us. When mom says, hand over your cell phone, it's like saying, hold out your hand so I can cut it off. Marshall McLuhan had a, had a phrase for this phenomenon, which you will not be tested over. He called it Narcissus Narcosis. You remember the story from Narcissus who looked into a pool of water and he fell in love with himself. Understand, he thought that he was looking at somebody else, the most beautiful person he had ever seen. And he became entranced. And we also become entranced with our new technologies, especially the powerful ones. And anything that affects the central nervous system is powerful. This is what McLuhan said. He said, precisely at the point where a new media-induced environment becomes all-pervasive, it also becomes invisible. McLuhan believed that the only way to survive the onslaught of powerful technologies as with electronic media is to develop a survival strategy. Now we go back to Poe's story and the sailor scrutinizing the patterns, and he attaches a barrel to himself and jumps boat. So I'm asking you today to be a strong sailor. So that's the first thing you need to understand about technology. We don't always realize what a technology is doing to us. The second thing that you need to understand about technology, the second eye opening truth about technology technology is not neutral. Many people think that technology is a zero sum game, but in truth, technology is a two edged sword. Technology gives and technology takes away. Now, technology, granted, has many benefits longer lifespan. Higher levels of comfort, ease, speed, we could go on and on. However, every technology comes with an unintended consequence, which we hardly ever think about. Let me just run through a few examples. And this is the kind of thing that media colleges just really like to to think about. The invention of the clock. The invention of the clock allowed monks to start their prayers all on time. But it also created the idea of moment by moment. The speaker today was talking about how we're all tired. (laughs) Well, we all serve the clock, don't we? You know, before the clock, we kept time by the rhythms of the day or the seasons, but now it's the second hand. Well, we don't have second hands anymore. I still have <laughs> a The assembly line allowed us to make furniture faster and cheaper, but along with industrialism came uh, the end to an economic unit uh, that relied upon the family as the That's the the, the cheap economic unit. So before the factory system, families had their own productive property, either by having a farm or having a shop. First fathers went off to work in the factory, and then after World War II, mothers went off to work in the factory. Now most of us work for somebody else. The automobile allowed us to get from one point to another faster, but it severed community ties like no other invention. The car allowed young couples to pair off. It was a portable living room on wheels for eating, drinking, and sex. The automobile restructured our physical landscape, giving us sprawl and sees a basketball, and billboards, and McDonald's signs. The telegraph. The telegraph allowed a message to travel from New York City to San Francisco in a second. That's pretty significant, by the way. Because before that, how fast could a message, message travel? Oh, this is a horse. It's a horse as a ship train. So, you know, that is pretty significant. But the thing about the telegraph is that it it, it trivialized information because up until that point, as David Thoreau said, uh, we really didn't need to know that the Queen of England had the whooping cough. The photograph gave us the family portrait on a polished copper plate but it also decontextualized information, giving us an abundance of images, often disassociated from the objects from which they came. Taken together, Neil Postman said that the telegraph and the photograph formed a kind of dynamic duo in communication history, and it gave us a world called uh, and it's Peekaboo. Are you familiar with peekaboo? Peekaboo, the child's game. Ever play peekaboo? Peekaboo, peekaboo. That's kind of like the world as it comes to us now. Peekaboo, peekaboo, a continuous round of disconnected information coming to us from every corner of the earth. Human beings had never lived this way until 150 years ago. The wireless or the radio brought entertainment into the American home on a nightly basis, whereas before, entertainment was to be found on a traveling show or the circus or an evening of uh, telling stories by uh, the fireplace. By the time television came along in the 1950s, Americans were entertaining themselves perpetually. Television became the dominant medium of public discourse for uh, about 50 years. It's still with us, of course. Neil Postman says television changed journalism. It changed education. It changed politics. It changed even religion like no other invention of its time. This is what Postman said in 1985 in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He said, when a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, When in short a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. He says culture death is a clear possibility. Sociologists and psychologists are now saying that we live in an age of distraction. Several years ago, a law professor, John Bacon, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times titled, The Kids Are Not Right. This is what he said. He said, when I sit with my two teenagers and they're a million miles away, absorbed by the tillating royal of online social life, the addictive pull of video games and virtual worlds, as they stare endlessly at video clips and digital pictures of themselves and their friends, it feels like something is wrong. He then adds There is reason to believe that childhood itself is now in crisis. When we consider the double-edged sword of our electronic devices, we can say that their portability, that we can whip out our iPhone at any time and look at anything that we want to. It does give us this wonderful feeling of power and convenience that human beings have never really experienced before. But this power and this convenience also comes with a price. It was only a few weeks ago that, I don't know if you pay attention to what's been in the news just recently, but we witnessed uh, US Senate hearings on where the chief executives of social media platforms or being condemned by our senators, or not doing enough to prevent online sexual abuse. In her book, iGen, psychologist, Jean Twenge chronicles how increasingly young people do not know how to interact with other people. Due to times uh, time spent on the screen, she reports that depression Self-harm and suicide are way up for young people. And she correlates her research with the introduction of smartphones. She says clinical uh, depression doubled between 2011 and 2019 for US teens. Well, that's just eight years. According to a 2021 Centers of Disease Control and Prevention report, 57% of high school girls say that they feel persistently sad and hopeless. As for high school boys, 29% feel persistently sad and hopeless. Furthermore, 30% of teenage girls have seriously attempted committing suicide. 30%, 30%. 30%, 30%. Now, when I taught at the university, uh, we had Dr. Twingy come and talk. Uh, we invited her to come and share her research to our freshman class. Now, she's a very dynamic speaker, if you've ever heard of her. But do you know what many of our students were doing while she was giving her presentation? They were on their phones. So, in summing up this section that I'm on right now, let me just say that perceiving the electronic vortex involves knowing two important truths. First, we do not always see what a technology is doing to our family. This is because all technologies are extensions of our bodies. And... Once we put them on, once we wear them, we forget about them as they transform our lives and our attitudes and our behaviors. Second, we do not realize that technology has unintended consequences. Sometimes this consequence can enhance human flourishing, but sometimes it does not. Now I've been talking uh, thus far about the problem, but now we're gonna turn a page and we're gonna talk about solutions. Uh, Confronting the beast, (laughs) keeping the beast at bay, or we can just say responding to the vortex. And before I get into this, let me tell you what I am not saying. I am not saying that you should burn your smartphone. I am not saying that you should throw your television set out of a second-story window. What I am saying is that you should be more aware of your habits. And maybe even come up with some alternative habits to replace the old ones. What you should not do is stay on a boat that's sinking fast into the vortex. I want to share a verse with you from Titus chapter 2. And uh, I'm sure you've heard, this is a good church. I know your pastor. Uh, he's talked about sanctification, right? So, what is sanctification? It's a biblical concept. Sanctification is God working in us to conform us more to the image of his Son. Let me read you from Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This will help us to understand how we should respond to the vortex. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the Bible actually describes sanctification as a two-way process. First, we renounce. Second, we reorient. So in the spirit of Poe's story, let me give you four ways that you can respond to the vortex. We might call these little water barrels that you would strap onto yourself to prepare to save yourself from the suck of the vortex. So here's the first one. I don't have this on the screen personally, but I do have the ready sailor here. First, control your technologies. Don't let them control you. That's the first thing. Control your technologies. Don't let them control you. We should master our technologies and not the other way around. The consumer should not be consuming. You know, we don't hear very much about the virtue of moderation anymore what the Bible calls self-control. Sometimes it's called temperance. In his book, *Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says temperance is, unfortunately, one of those words that has changed its meaning over time. He says that we've come to associate it with teetotalism, but its classical usage meant nothing of the sort. Lewis says, Temperance referred not specifically to drink, but to all pleasures, and it meant not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. Moderation or self-control is listed as a free of the spirit. Galatians 5.23. The Apostle Paul says... Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Again, Paul says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. In the last days, we are told that people will be heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control. So first, Control your technologies. Don't let them control you. Second, remember, you are not a robot. Have you ever had to fill out one of those things online and (laughs) electronically check it off? I am not a robot. Well, I hope you all check that box. Well, if you're not a robot, then what are you? The psalmist asked, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You're not a robot. You're a human being made in the image of God. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him through his nostrils, the breath of life, and he became a living soul. God in his wisdom gave us bodies. I guess you know that Mark Zuckerberg is in the process of creating the metaverse for his Facebook users or anybody else, I suppose. A, A world of simulation where people can live their working lives as avatars. The metaverse promises to be a, quote, embodied internet, which really is an oxymoron. Because when we connect to the internet, we're actually disembodied. Well, think about this. In the history of redemption, God came to rescue us from sin by taking a human body. The doctrine of the incarnation teaches that God must have thought that our bodies were were, were important. Otherwise, he would not have sent his son to die in the flesh for us. Emmanuel means God with us. Here's, here's what we need to understand. Incarnation. The incarnation means that real presence is a proof of real love. Our speaker today alluded to this, being present with your children. Remember? Real presence is a proof of real love. Years ago, Bell Telephone had an advertisement that said that its product was the next best thing to being there. So what's the best thing? Being there. Real presence is a proof of real love. I mean, what kind of parent would you be if you locked your child in a room and fed her through a slot in the door. What kind of parent would you be if you did this? Never to see her, only to text her every now and then? You're not a robot. You're not a robot. Third, provide ways to expand your child's imagination that serve as alternatives to electronic media. Provide ways to expand your child's imagination that serve as alternatives to electronic media. There's a number of things that we can do for our children to spare them from the suck of the vortex. First, read to your children. We know the children who are read to become readers themselves. Start early and be consistent. Age-appropriate books uh, are important, and then move them up the line. They will pick it up, and they will start to read themselves. The Hobbit prepares a child for the Lord of the Rings. And parents, your child will more likely become a reader if you're a reader. Second, get your child outside. In his book, Last Child in the Woods, Richard Lube considers the growing divide between between children and the natural world in what he calls nature deficit disorder. Symptoms of nature deficit disorder include decreased attention spans, physical and emotional distress, and spiritual depredation. You know, when I was 12 years old, I would ride my bike to the mall from my house, five miles, with a banana seat, Stingray bike, no helmet, without a shirt. That was for the glory days. But yeah, I don't know, kids do that sort of thing anymore. You know? In fact, there are probably children who uh, hardly get out of their backyard. Or they're probably children who don't even get in their backyard. They stay inside. And so nature recedes from the child's view as it's replaced by virtual realities. So seek alternatives to your children. Reading, getting outside. Fourth, create, this is my last point for today, Create cultural liturgies in your home to counteract secular cultural liturgies. Now, as a Presbyterian, we're not afraid of that word liturgy, um, and I don't think you guys are afraid of it either. A liturgy is just simple, simply the, uh, the pattern that we follow. So in your worship service on Sunday, you have a liturgy. It's your order of worship. But did you know that even in our lives, we have liturgies? Well, we're creatures of habit. And our lit- liturgies form habits. The ancients called good habits virtues." and bad habits, they called vices." Ralph Waldo Emerson said, "Sow a thought, and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. In his book, You Are What You Love, Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith refers to our daily habits as cultural liturgy. For example, the affection that we have for shopping, is a kind of cultural liturgy that holds out the good of consumerism. The mall is kind of a temple that we visit ritually that shapes our hearts toward consumption. Likewise, the time we spent in front of a television set is a kind of cultural liturgy that holds out the good of entertainment. Now tomorrow's the Super Bowl, I know, but hours we spend watching, say, professionalized sports, that's also a cultural liturgy. Super Bowl itself is a cultural event, but it holds out the good of spectatorship. The time teenagers and (laughs) preteens spend on cell phones taking it to bed with them is a habit of the heart and it constitutes a cultural liturgy. Facebook time is a kind of cultural liturgy. Especially if the first thing you do in the morning is look to see who messaged you. Of course, some of our pursuits are not necessarily bad within themselves, but they shape us in ways we don't realize. And they do so because they take up our time and they take up our attention. Also, we put put our affections into these habits. But here's what you need to know. People who design cell phones and people who build malls and people who produce football programming, they don't really care about what you think, but they care very much about what you love. And we saturate ourselves in these liturgies every day. This is what Smith says. He says all kinds of cultural rhythms and routines are in fact rituals that function as pedagogies of desire precisely because they tactically and covertly train us to love a certain version of the kingdom. They teach us to long for some rendition of the good life. These aren't just things we do, they do something to us. And so we should become readers of cultural liturgies. Pattern recognition. Smith says that we need to constantly ask ourselves these kinds of questions. What are the secular liturgies in our lives? What version of the good life are these liturgies giving us? Too often, the modern home becomes little more than an an entertainment hub and a temporary sleeping quarters for frustrated children and self-actualizing adults. But these rhythms and rituals, they shape us. Our character. And so, my, my exhortation is to be aware and then put off the old man, put on the new man, and so that uh, we, should, we should produce some habits in our family's lives that are character building. And also point us more toward the kingdom of God. Let me just give you a few. There's the garage liturgy. Here father and son work together with their greasy hands to make new objects or repair old ones. Stories are being told in the garage. Stories that place the boy in a larger story. Stories that give him some idea of where he came from. What's expected of him and where they're headed in God's great big story. There's the kitchen liturgy. Here mother and daughter have flour up to their elbows, creating tonight's dinner, and narratives are being shared, narratives that place the girl in a larger narrative that gives some idea of where she came from, what's expected of her, and where she's headed in God's great big kingdom there's the dining room liturgy. Here, family is gathered around the table. No one's listening to music. Nobody is on their phone. No one's glued to a screen. Bless, you can hear them. Bless us, O oh Lord, and these gifts, which we are about to receive from your bounty. The food is then passed. The day's events are rehearsed. Encouragement is dispensed questions are asked. Sally wants to know when she can bake a pie. Johnny wants to know why there's evil in the world. Little Ruby wants to know who lives on the moon. And all questions are discussed because nobody has to be anywhere for the next hour. There's the living room liturgy. Here family devotionals are had before bedtime. Scripture reading, prayer, request. It takes no more than 15, 20 minutes. During the Christian uh, calendar, during the year, the Christian calendar is honored, honored in a tangible way. Whether it's wrapping a Christmas present or, or painting an Easter egg, candles and symbols and music and art and drama flourish in the living room. Why? Because it's an imagination station for the kingdom of God. There's the bedroom liturgy. The imagination also flourishes in the bedroom so that books like the Chronicles of Narnia come to life. Sally is deep into sense and sensibility. Johnny is reading The Hobbit for the first time. And Ruby, she lights up as she absorbs the colorful pages of Goodnight. There's the backyard liturgy. In the backyard, dad mows the grass, mom snips the shrubs, Sally paints the patio furniture, Johnny feeds the dog, and Ruby holds a funeral service for George, the dead grasshopper. (laughs) There's a family garden in the backyard, which everyone tends. God's good gifts come from the family garden so as we close out in this age of distraction what we need to do as christians is to live our lives more intentionally otherwise you're going to get sucked down into the vortex you don't have to come looking for it it's going to come looking for you In this way, we can fulfill the biblical exhortation which, which says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of time, because the days are evil. Well, I took, we have 20 seconds for Q&A. <laughs> so. uh, Pastor, what's your... Uh, can we? Have, well, your clock has three minutes, so <laughs> I don't know which is correct. I have three minutes. We got three minutes for Q we we got got time. Have. See if we got questions for you. Yeah. Okay. okay. Any thoughts? Doesn't have to be a question. Can be if a, just a, uh, something more to share.
1: I read a New York Times article this week about um, the cocoa melon and the creators behind that, and the subtitle was resistance is futile Ah. and it was talking about the research that goes into even these shows for like two-year-olds on youtube yeah uh and the billions of views that they have we don't do coco melon but um just you know like they figure out a yellow bus is more attractive to kids than a red one yeah and the kids like a little dirt they they like a they like a little boo-boo with a little bit of dirt around it and they were like a red ball with a scratch on it a little dirt that's like
0: Know, the perfect, oh, they're spending a lot but, of money
1: they, on this. They, in their research, they call it a distractatron. They have a little screen off to the side of the TV that's just showing real life images. So, like 20 seconds of mom cooking in the kitchen or whatever. And it's like anytime that kid looks away from the show to that, it's like, okay, we need to fix something on the show. And um, it was disturbing to read that, but then you realize that's the kind of stuff that's really been. Done in adult media and older kids' right. entertainment for years. Sure,
0: sure, sure. And uh, you know they spend so much money researching all that. Mar- mm-hmm. I, you know, I've mentioned Marshall McLuhan. He had a he had a great quote. I'll give this to you. He said, "You know, when it comes to this sort of thing, what you have to do is have determination to just run up and kick them in the electrodes." <laughs> <laughs> so that's really what we're talking about. I'll, you know, uh, resistance is futile. You know what that line is from, don't you? Star Trek, <laughs> the board. Remember what the board does? It, uh, it attacks you. What well, first, first of all, it comes at you at warp 10 speed, and it's after you, and then it captures you, and then it tries to assimilate you, and it turns your internal organs into machine parts. That's what the board did. And had, a Frank, resistance is futile. <laughs> Star Trek. Any other thoughts? When I was in college, I can't remember the bias I was taking, but it was involving cultural trends with, with students. And the time of Steve Jobs was still alive. Beans um, of One News was the Brain Trust behind Apple. But um, the thing that was interesting that was in there was. He was asked when all the iPhone, the iPod, all that was being created. Like, are you so excited for your kids to be able to use this? And he said, I'm not going to. Let yeah. Touch yeah. And, and Bill Gates said the same thing. As it just goes back to what you were saying, like it was created to make people addicted to it. Yeah. yeah. It's not always easy to see that. Yeah. 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 In, a, in, a, in our capitalistic society, and I'm a capitalist, I believe very much in American enterprise, although I'm a I believe there ought to be more capitalists than fewer. Um, We don't need to forget as Christians that our allegiance is to God's kingdom and that every system, whether it's economic or uh, governmental, has some downside that people will abuse. Uh, So, you know, it's a matter of resistance, it is a matter of resistance. All right, any other thoughts? Yeah. Reference Jean Twingdeath, a while ago. Yeah. Remember when she came to campus. Yeah. yeah. And people the students did not receive her well at all. No. I it was almost remember. like because she put a mirror in them and she did she not receive that backwards down. <laughs> well, appreciate it. But the students have not received her at all. But she's got fascinating research. You go to her website, just look. Yeah. Because yeah. there's the flip side of some of this is that uh, things like the risky behavior down, uh-huh. teen pregnancy is down. I need those. Yeah. He's not going outside. But not interacting Bye. as much. Well. So it's really interesting. To see. It is. It is yeah. very interesting. Uh, yes. thank, is. thank you so much for listening, and uh, feel free to let others know about. We'll be meeting again, at what time? And at... be right after work. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be doing this again. So let's go ahead. Do we need to pray? Or go ahead. Okay, Father, we thank you now for this time and bless this food to our bodies. And for this much, in Jesus' name, amen.